Hi, Dan. Hi, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about stuff from history <laughs> you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> yeah, we changed up the intro and we can't really think about what to say because we used to do just people. And then we decided to expand it to events and now I'm doing like an invention. So it's basically just like stuff from history that just you stuff. may or may not have heard of. You're run-of-the-mill stuff, basically, is what we're <laughs> doing now. How's your week been, Dan? I mean, it, it feels like constant Groundhog Day now. It's not been too bad. We went to Canterbury, actually, at the weekend. Nice. And um, it's great. We went and saw um, Rich Borough, the first Roman settlement in Britain. Nice. Amazing. Still got these massive, like, towering walls. Quite impressive that they could build something like that back in those times. Don't have the, like, triumphal arch anymore. Just, like, the... Uh, the foundations it's all the remains of that but that was cool that was really exciting massive like uh ditches around there i did like a stupid video where i pretended to charge at it and then because it was a really <laughs> deep ditch then chickened out they entertained me that's all that i need man of simple pleasures a couple of castles as well uh went to um deal castle there's another castle down there. So, like, you know the series of forts that, like, Henry built, like, in the south of England to defend against yeah. like, France and Spain? So it's one of those. And there's the other one. is like, just down the road, which looks way better. So it, we kind of, yeah, we got it wrong. We picked the wrong <laughs> castle. But it was cool. You had a very similar weekend to me, then, because I went to Bath. We went to the Roman Baths, so Roman stuff. Um, nice, nice, we nice. We had the audio guides, and they have, like, a Bill Bryson audio guide now. Oh, nice. And it's, like, so much funnier than the actual one. He's great. I love Bill Bryson. That's cool. And then we went to the Jane Austen Centre. Then we went on to Wales, and we went to the castle in Cardiff, which is a medieval castle, but really also with the Victorian there. bit. And we went up Penny Fan again with my boyfriend's family, which was all very fun. Cool. Yes, and I got very burnt. And I don't usually get sunburnt, and I just look... My arms and shoulders are raw. It's horrific. But now so, it's raining again, so there you go. I, I got burned as well, but um, yeah, it still hasn't actually turned into a tan. Normally my Asian skin just browns <laughs> up real quickly, but I'm still a bit red, which is a bit annoying. Aww. It's failing me. You're red, red Asian. <laughs> my Asian genes are failing me. They're slowly fading. you just be British <laughs> by like the end of the summer. Should we do it? Let's do it. Let's, okay. Let's get on this thing. Let me ask you if you've heard of the person, and then I'll ask you if you've heard of the thing he invented. <laughs> so, good. have you ever? Have you? Have you ever? <laughs> have you ever heard of Dmitri Mendeleev? No, I cannot say I have. Okay. Well, have you ever heard of the periodic table? Oh, I've heard of the periodic <laughs> table. Well, here we go then. So, let me talk a little bit about his early life, and then we'll talk about the periodic table. Ooh. So, Dmitry was born Dmitry Ivanich Mendelev in a village near Tobolsk in Siberia. That is a fantastic Russian name. Like, you can't get more Russian than that. <laughs> no, it was really good. Well, his parents were called Ivan and Maria. Oh, yes. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. His father was a school principal and teacher of arts, politics, and philosophy. Oh. And his grandfather was a Russian Orthodox priest. So he was a a B S C M S C a C an S C not an A conflict there conflict. 
His mother came from a well-known family of merchants. They actually founded the first Siberian printing house, apparently. Yeah. Mendeleev was raised as an Orthodox Christian. He did actually like end up stepping away from the church. He was the youngest of 17 siblings. What? Yes, 17. <laughs> That's like a small village. Yeah, well, three of them died very early, like before baptism. So I guess either like stillborn or just like infant. And there are conflicts among sources about how many... 17 seems to be the consensus Jesus number. Okay. Christ. <laughs> so his father actually died when he was 13, and at a similar time, his mother's factory burned down. Jeez. So that's he, yeah, that's a bit stressful. But as he's the youngest, I think that probably benefited him. So he didn't have to, like, drop out or anything. And this is just conjecture, but I'm pretty yeah. sure that's why he didn't have to drop out. Army of older siblings to work for the family. Yeah, exactly. That's why you have 17 kids. Yeah, so at least one of them can go to school. <laughs> As a teenager, he attended the gymnasium in Tobolsk. In 1849, his mother trotted him off to Moscow to try and get him into Moscow University, but they didn't take him. So they continued on to St. Petersburg, which was where his father had gone. The family relocated there, and he went to the main pedagogical institute in 1850. After graduation, he actually contracted tuberculosis, oh, which meant he might have to move to the um, Crimean Peninsula on the north coast of the Black Sea in 1855. The consumption. While there, he became a science master of the first Symphoropol Gymnasium, so just a teacher, basically. In 1857, he returned to St. Petersburg, fully restored to his health. So whenever I see his markings, like SC... I was just thinking, oh, that's such a dry subject. Anything that's like SC rather than A, like B, B SC. Science no, is great. No, it's going to be dry. It's going to be dry <laughs> as fuck. It's going to be like a desert dry. It's going to be like Siberia dry. Because even though it's like got snow, it's still like basically a desert, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so some quick pre-periodic table work. So between 1859 and 1861, he worked on capillarity of liquids. I have no idea what that means, but he did. Cool. He published a textbook named Organic Chemistry. He actually won the Demidov Prize of the Petersburg Academy of Sciences for the book. On the 4th of April, 1862, he became engaged to Fiazova Leschekova, and they married on the 27th of April, 1862, actually at, like, um, the place that he taught, but the church that was connected to where he taught. Okay, then. He became a professor at St. Petersburg Technological Institute and St. Petersburg State University in 1864 and 65, respectively. In 1865, he became a doctor of science for his dissertation on the combinations of water with alcohol. He... Uh, Achieved tenure in 1867 at St. Petersburg University and started to teach inorganic chemistry. By 1871, he had transformed St. Petersburg into an internationally recognised centre for chemistry research. Mm. So that is his life up to a point. Now I'm going to talk about the history of the periodic table for a little bit. Cool, please. So, in terms of like early, really early, like um history of the periodic table 
A very small number of elements such as carbon, iron, gold and lead have been known since antiquity, largely, of course, because of mining. Mm. Aristotle proposed around 330 BC that everything is made up of a mixture of one or more roots, but it's actually a Sicilian philosopher, Empedocles, who first proposed this. These roots were later renamed elements by Plato, where earth lay water, air, and fire were the elements. But it wasn't just the Greeks who thought this, as Indian philosophers did also. Then, when alchemy became a thing, a few others were also discovered, such as zinc and arsenic. Yeah, deadly arsenic. The first person to discover a new element was Henning Brandt, a German merchant. He was trying to discover the Philosopher's Stone, as in from the book, but like... It does different stuff in this way. Trying to turn base metal into gold. Yes, exactly. So a mythical object that turns metals into gold. Around 1669, he experimented with distilled human urine and produced a white substance which he called cold fire. He kept it a secret until 1680 when an Anglo-Irish chemist called Robert Boyle rediscovered what we now call phosphorus and he published his findings. In 1661, Boyle defined an element as those primitive and simple bodies of which the mixed ones are said to be composed and into which they are ultimately resolved. Phosphorus is a nasty element. They made shells out there with World War II and they just burned forever. Phosphorus is the only good one. That's the only good one. <laughs> In 1789, a chemist called Antoine Lavoisier sorry for pronouncing that one, wrote an elementary treatise of chemistry which is considered to be the first modern textbook on chemistry. He defined an element as a substance whose smallest units cannot be broken down into simpler substance. This textbook contained a list of these simple substances, including oxygen, nitrogen, and some others. And this formed the basis for the modern list. However, this list also included light and caloric, which aren't in the modern list. So light is not an element. Yeah. It's made up of other stuff. <laughs> That's not a substance. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a thing. What is light? Anyone? Don't do a podcast on light? <laughs> Around 1809, a British philosopher called John Dalton published a method for measuring atomic weights. And it was adopted by many during the 1800s. Then, in 1815, a scientist called William Prout noticed that atomic weights seem to be multiples of hydrogen. That's why hydrogen is the first element. In 1817, a German physicist called Johann Wolfgang Dobriner began to formulate one of the earliest attempts to classify the elements. In 1829, he found that he could form some of the elements into groups of three, and he called them triads. In 1860, a revised list of elements and atomic masses was presented at a conference, and this began the creation of new systems. So, some people then started to try and formalise the system of elements. And don't worry, we're coming back to Mendeleev soon. <laughs> so, a French geologist called Alexandre Emile Beguier de Chancorets, that is so not how you pronounce that, <laughs> I'm so sorry, noticed that if you order the elements by atomic weights, then they display similar properties at regular intervals. Hence, like, the periodic table, because there's, like, periods which is not something i ever realized before i never even questioned why it was called that in 1862 he devised a 3d chart 
called a telluric helix, named after tellurium, which fell near the centre of the diagram. The way that they spiralled around a cylinder, he noticed that elements with similar properties lined up vertically. Next came a British chemist called John Newlands, who, in 1864, presented a classification of the known 62 elements. At this time, only 62 were known. Newlands noticed that the recurring trends happened at intervals of 8, in order of mass number. Based on this, he put them into eight groups. Newland's table didn't leave any gaps for future elements, and in some cases, two elements had the same position. And the fact that chemical society refused to publish his work, and some contemporaries actually ridiculed his attempt. Because obviously, like, if you can't put any new ones in, then what happens when you find them? And if they ha- some of them have the same yeah. space, that doesn't really work. But, you know, if people hadn't tried, then I just don't think it's good to ridicule someone. Like, you'd Without him trying, I'm sure the next guy wouldn't have done what he did. And anyway, that's how the all the conversation. Like yeah, exactly. Next was the German chemist Lothar Mayer, who is kind of Mendeleev's like nemesis in a way. <laughs> He's the Tesla to no, the Edison to yeah, his exactly. Tesla. Yeah, um, exactly. So Mayer also noted the sequences of similar properties at repeated intervals. In 1864, a book of his was published which contained an early version of the table containing 28 elements in six groups according to their balance, which means the ability of an atom or group of atoms to combine with other atoms or groups of atoms. No, I don't understand what that means either. Not a sciencey <laughs> person, but that's what it means. I looked it up. So, in 1868, he revised his table and it was published after his death. In a paper which appeared in 1870, Mayer published a new table of 55 elements in which each series of periods end with an element of the alkaline earth metal group. He also included a chart of uh, relative atomic volumes which helped Mayer in deciding where the elements should appear in the periodic table. By this time, he had already seen the work of the next person but his work appears to have been independent. So, in 1869, our man, Dmitry Mendeleev, arranged 63 elements in increasing atomic weight in several columns, noting the recurring chemical properties across them. Mendeleev used the trends he saw to suggest that atomic weights of some elements were incorrect and changed their place. Mendeleev widely distributed printed broadsheets of the work to various scientists in Russia and elsewhere, so if you are one of those people out there like me, who has at some point in their life had a poster of the periodic table, Mendeleev was the first guy to print out posters of the periodic table. Oh man, he already knew. He already knew that you were going to be able to get them in, um, <laughs> like, old HMVs. Oh my god, there was a HMV in Bath. <laughs> oh man, there was one of those in Canterbury as well. Shook. Man, these old Roman towns, dude. I'm pretty sure there was only one guy working in there. It's probably like <laughs> an intern or something. Um, okay, so Mendeleev continued to improve his ordering. In 1870, it gained a tabular shape and each column was given its own highest oxide value. Some changes also occurred with new revisions, with some elements changing their positions. So he's, he's still like revising it, basically. Okay. So even though Mendeleev corrected the positions of some elements, there were still some problems. He thought that, that there were still some relationships that he could not find and therefore there were some elephants elephants 
elephants. There were some elements. Elephants in that room. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some elephants in the room about his elements that weren't <laughs> were undiscovered. Because he couldn't find the relationships, he knew that there were elements missing. Okay. In 1870, Mendeleev tried to categorize these undiscovered elements, and he gave detailed predictions for three of them he called Icaboron, Ica Aluminium, and Ica Sicilium. Ica is actually Sanskrit for the number one. Okay. The 1869 list misplaces seven then-known elements, five of which were rare, rare earth elements. So ignoring these allowed him to restore the logic of the increasing atomic weight. These elements really puzzled Mendeleev. He had a big problem with rare earth elements, apparently. First, he grouped <laughs> them together, and then he decided the weights that, that had to be wrong. He decided that they might be trivalent, which means that their weight would be increased by a half. So say if your weight was four, then your weight would actually be six, because it's increased by half of what he thought your weight was. Okay. Um, with his experience, he noticed there was a significant difference in atomic mass between kerium and tantalum, with no element between them, which he thought that must mean there was a whole row of yet undiscovered elements, which would have similar properties between the two, because of such a large gap between them. So having hit a roadblock, Mendeleev abandoned his attempts to incorporate the rare earth metals in late 1871. In addition to the predictions of scandium, Gallimann and germanium that were quickly realised, Mendeleev's 1871 table left many more spaces for undiscovered elements, though he did not provide detailed predictions of their properties, only for like some of them. In total, he predicted 18 elements, though only half corresponded to elements that were actually later discovered. Though I think that's pretty awesome. That he was like, I'm pretty sure these are gonna come up, and then like nine of them were actually found. You have to be really smart to like predict a, a property of an that's, element yeah, that's, that's good impressive predict some elements <laughs> he actually would i think it's nine that going. he like got right and they actually got discovered <laughs> and so proposes of this periodic table weren't accepted like immediately throughout the community many contemporary chemists found it too abstract to have any meaningful value which is just hilarious because it's like <laughs> on every mug in the science museum now uh, Mendeleev and Mayer differed in temperament, at least when it came to the promotion of their respective works. Boldness of Mendeleev's predictions was noted by contemporary chemists, however sceptical they may have been. Mayer read, referred to Mendeleev's boldness in an edition of Modern Theories, whereas Mendeleev mocked Mayer's indecisiveness to predict in an edition of Foundations of Chemistry. So, like... Mendeleev was like, yeah, I'm going to be bold and say that these are the things that are going to happen. And Mayer was like more cautious. Mendeleev was like, poo-poo. And I guess he was right in at least half of them. So. <laughs> so recognition of Mendeleev's table. Eventually, the periodic table was appreciated for its descriptive power and for finally systematizing the relationship between the elements. Not everywhere, but mostly. In 1881, Mendeleev and Mayer even had a spat in the form of articles in the British Journal British Journal Chemical News over the priority of the table. So they like wrote articles to each other being like snarking snarky each, each other. other. Some sort of weird like reality <laughs> television thing through like a, a chemical <laughs> journal. Throwing some shade. <laughs> in 1882 the Royal Society in London awarded Dave, the Davy Medal to both Mendeleev and Mayer for their work to classify the elements. Although two of Mendeleev's predicted elements had been discovered by then, Mendeleev's predictions were not all mentioned in the prize rationale which seems 
strange, but okay. Mm. Over the 70s and 80s, and by 70s and 80s, I mean 1870s and 80s, predicted elements were discovered. He also corrected some initial measurements with his predictions, including that of Ganium, for example. Success of Mendeleev's predictions helped spread the word about his periodic table. So obviously it's like, hey, a new element has been discovered. It was predicted by this guy. Look at his table kind of thing. Mm -hmm. By 1890, his periodic table had been universally recognized as a piece of basic chemical knowledge. Apart from correct predictions made by Mendeleev, a number of aspects may have contributed to this. There was debate on the position of the rare earth metals had helped spur the discussion about the table, for example. In 1889, Mendeleev noted at the Faraday Lecture of the Royal Institution in London that he had not expected to live long enough to mention their discovery to the Chemical Society of Great Britain as a confirmation of the exactitude and generality of the periodic law. And that's where the word, I guess, periodic table comes from. So what did Mendeleev do beyond the table? Which then, obviously after Mendeleev, there's a load of other really important people and discoveries that happened to make the table what it is today. But Mendeleev was like, and Maya were like the guys who... Started it off, yeah, yeah. They started the scene. Okay, so beyond the table. In 1870s, Mendeleev published widely on all sorts of things, including industry, technical issues, and agricultural productivity. He explored demographic issues, sponsored studies of the Arctic Sea, tried to measure the efficacy of chemical fertilisers, and promoted the Merchant Navy. He was active in improving Russian petroleum industry as well. He observed industry throughout his European travels, and in 1891 he helped convince the Ministry of Finance to impose temporary tariffs with the aim of fostering Russian infant industries. In 1890, he resigned his professorship at the St. Petersburg University following a dispute with officials at the Ministry of Education over the treatment of university students. So he, like, protested. How are they being treated? I don't know. I'm guessing not well. (laughs) He just, he he got, like, he literally stepped down from a tenure position. It's crazy. But by this time, he'd already, like, done the period of table thing. So he's like, I'm out. In 1892, he was appointed director of Russia's Central Bureau of Weights and Measures and led the way to standardise fundamental prototypes and measurement procedures. He set up an inspection system and introduced the metric system to Russia. Oh, okay. What a guy. He debated against scientific claims of spiritualism, arguing that metaphysical idealism was no more than ignorant superstition. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like metaphysical idealism. Same, Same here. Much more a uh, continental school guy than an mm. analytic school. Ugh. He was also not a fan of the widespread acceptance of spiritualism in Russian culture and its negative effects on the study of science. Ah. Interestingly, there's a very popular Russian story that credits Mendeleev with setting the 40% standard of the strength of vodka, which is, is just a myth, by the way, unfortunately. For example, Russian Standard Vodka advertises, in 1894, Dmitry Mendeleev, the greatest scientist in all of Russia, received the decree to set the imperial quality standard for Russian vodka, and the Russian standard was born. <laughs> but not true. In fact, the 40% standard was already introduced by the Russian government in 1843, when Mendeleev was actually nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in eight, uh, in 1905, Mendeler was elected as a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. The following year, the Nobel Committee for Chemistry recommended to the Swedish Academy to award the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for 1906 to Mendeleev for his discovery of the periodic system. The chemistry select section of the Swedish Academy supported the recommendation. The Academy was then supposed to approve the committee's choice, as it had done almost in every case. However, unexpectedly, at the full meeting of the Academy, a dissenting member of the Nobel Committee, Peter Clayson, proposed the candidacy of Henry Mo- Moesan, whom he favoured. Svante Arahus, although not a member of the Nobel Committee for Chemistry, had a great deal of influence in the Academy and also pressed for the rejection of Mendeleev, arguing that the periodic system was too old to acknowledge its discovery in 1906. Oh, that's harsh. Because it is quite a, while, quite a while after. Yeah, but like, it took ages for people to accept it. Anyway, according to the contemporaries, Arrhenius was motivated by a grudge he held against Mendeleev for his critique of Arrhenius's dissociation theory. So, yeah. After many heated arguments, the majority of the Academy chose Moisan by a margin of one vote. The attempts to nominate Mendeleev in 1907 were again frustrated by the absolute opposition of Arrhenius. So Arrhenius guy. And then that year, 1907, Mendeleev died at the age of 72 in St. Petersburg from influenza. According to this... According to my research, his last words were to his physician, Doctor, you have science, I have faith, which is probably a Jules Verne quote. Uh. And that is Mendeleev and his periodic table, or our periodic table. So thank you, Mendeleev, for your contribution to science. I thought he didn't have faith. I thought he was a... Uh, no, he was quoting Jules Verne. Oh, uh, okay then. <laughs> I like I like people's last words. There's um, yeah. Uh, Chekhov said, "It's been a, such a long time since I last had champagne." Because he was having champagne with his wife. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and they, I guess most people don't say anything particularly like intelligent as a last words. No, yeah, your brain's all fuzzy. This is it's basically gone. You're shutting down. <laughs> like you're not at full Going capacity. <laughs> Uh, that was interesting. Yeah, I was going to do, like, the whole history of the periodic table. But to be honest, I think Mendeleev's the most interesting part of it. Yeah. And it's good to have a bit of an idea of what kind of man he was. He seems like a badass. Like, he's just science through and through. I guess it was quite a, a long way after. But, I mean, like, the Nobel Prize doesn't, like... Expire. Like, having a number one, like, hit in the charts. Like, it, it doesn't have to happen, like, while it's, uh, while it's up there. Yeah, it's, like, weird. It's, like... If you want it, want it in like literature, then surely you've spent like your whole life doing that thing. Whereas if you win yeah. it in like peace, you have to have done it what in the past year or something. No, that yeah. doesn't make sense to me. Just silly. Russia had quite a few uh, discoveries. Cause, I mean, like, especially considering it was con- like fairly backwards in the fairly backwards. backwards. <laughs> is, that, is that the right term? I feel bad saying that. Kind of was, though, wasn't it? I mean, like. Yeah, it wasn't as advanced. Like the country that the uh, the Soviets inherited from the Tsar after World War One, mm. not in the best uh, state condition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So, what are you doing this weekend? No, nothing planned. 
I think it's going to be like this, isn't it? Just dull and rainy. I think it's going to bright up tomorrow. Is, going, I think. is it? Is it? Okay, not like case, probably, bright, bright. I but, yeah. I don't know. We've got any plans? Cool. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Going to see my mummy and daddy tomorrow. Uh, Me and my mummy are going to go daddy. to the um, what's it called? Like garden center to buy some. Tomato plants and stuff. Very nice. Um, and we have dinner, lunch with them, and then see my Toby sister-in-law for a quick coffee or something. And we might have, if it's not raining, we might have a like a barbecue in our garden. Just, oh, just me nice. and Matt. <laughs> just like, <woo. laughs> and then on Sunday, I'm seeing my friend for a swim and some Greek food. So yeah, actually quite a busy weekend. Yeah. At some point, I'll edit this podcast as well. (laughs) I would like to make a recommendation for a film on Netflix called Oxygen. It's a French film, so only watch it if you want to read. It's kind of like the (laughs) film Buried with Ryan Reynolds. Do you know that film? Oh, yeah, that's a wicked film. Yeah, so she wakes up in like a cryogenic chamber and she can't remember a thing. And she's like, what the fuck? And the only person she can really talk to is like, the, the the chamber is like you know got like a robot yeah yeah the AI a bit of AI lovely lovely conversation so yeah check that out it's on Netflix called Oxygen nice have to give that a watch I've been watching uh, because obviously we went to the the place in Rome in Canterbury I just marathoned all of the series of uh, Rome like the docudrama yeah is it good Netflix it's really good is it on Netflix it's the best yeah, I need to watch it. It's one of the best docudramas I think I've seen. Like the mix of talking heads and and dra- and uh, drama. I think that's the best mix I've seen. I love that those ever. ones that have like loads of like I don't know, like raw fights, and then it goes back to talking yeah, yeah. heads. There's a really good one on. It's a BBC one. I think it's just on YouTube about Genghis Khan. That's very similar. Oh nice! Mm-hmm. I'll look. I'm gonna look that one up. Oh my god, it's really good. Gengi. Yeah. Good old Gengi. Type in like BBC Gengi Khan, you'll find it. It's like, yeah, talking heads, but then also the the docu- Sweet battle Yeah, scenes. sweet battle scenes, basically. But also, like, <laughs> they had, like, the one guy who's playing Gengi Khan. He's really good. There's a bit where he, like, goes round the Great Wall of China. It's like, because they built it, and then <laughs> yeah. he's like, hmm, I'm just going to have to go around it. It's like, what, <laughs> the point? what was the point in building it if someone could just go around it? For something so famous, it was pretty shit. <laughs> <laughs> just like so dumb that's where you built this to keep him specifically out and then and just then the, around it the, and then the french did the same thing hundreds of years later imagine no line but stop at belgium it's fine just leave it at belgium stop it at the ardennes you don't need to go any further so funny so everyone should what should they do they should subscribe wherever they're listening to this that's on apple spotify google um yeah, the Podbean app, any of your good app app providers, podcast providers, well, you'll get us every day, every Monday, except, except for last Monday, we took a week off for the bank holiday. But most Mondays, yeah. you'll get us talking about We're here history and to entertain stuff. and teach you. <laughs> uh, and also, if you fancy it, just give us a little review, like five stars, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I can't. I can't put the stars in your mouth, fingers, mouth. <laughs> in your click, in your click, in I your phone. Know. 
Um, yeah, any help that you could give us would be great, even if it's just telling a, fr- a single friend about it. Fantastic. Just one. And um, join us next time. Bye. Bye.